It's a funny place to be, stuck in a seemingly mundane world with an inner knowing that the universe is so much more than our mortal minds can comprehend. Yet we all have the capacity to know peace and our oneness with the wholeness of life. And through these interviews, discussions, and reflections, it is my intention to share this possibility. I'm Ryan Kurzak, and this is the Kriya Yoga Podcast. Okay, well, welcome back, everyone, to the uh, afternoon session for our um, Friday portion of the Kriya Yoga Solstice Retreat. Um, today, once more, we have another special guest, um, Laurel Trujillo, who is a minister for Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. She's a medical doctor. She's the host of The Yoga Hour podcast. Um, we did some work together recently, and she'll be on the Kriya Yoga uh, podcast here in probably about two or three weeks, so watch for that. Um, she's going to be presenting for us on the power and the purpose of the yamas and niyamas. Um, so thank you for being here, Laurel. It's it's wonderful to have you. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm I'm really thrilled uh, to be here. Okay, so in a departure from the previous um, presentations, I decided that I wanted to do two things. Number one is to go ahead and put together a PowerPoint. Um, I enjoyed the ability to include some uh, beautiful photographs of nature as we go, um, hope, hoping that they will um, uh, insert a little uh, sattva into the presentation. And then also I wanted to um, make this much more of an interactive uh, experience. And so what we're going to do, I think I've got an overview slide here. What's the next one? Okay. Oh, my first thing is talking about the Yoga Hour podcast. I wanted to make sure to, to kind of underline that from, from uh, what Ryan just said. So it's a free podcast. Uh, it's hour-long conversations on topics that really explore the depth and breadth of yoga. Um, I did have Ryan on as a guest in March about his um, the book that he published about conversation transcriptions of conversations with Roy Davis. It was a lovely episode that you can find in the archive. But over the last couple of weeks, weeks I've had a wonderful conversation with Nipun Mehta, who's a tremendous practitioner of karma yoga, and then also Baxter Bell, who's a physician and yoga therapist. And we were talking about yoga for chronic inflammation. So those are. Those are two recent episodes that you can find. We did literally just launch the website, which started on Tuesday at theyogahour.com. And the best way to reach me is through the website, and there is contact information there. Um, it is sponsored by the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, uh, csecenter.org, which is um, the organization that was created by Ellen Grace O'Brien, Yogacharya O'Brien, um, who was a student of uh, Roy Jean Davis, I believe since about 1979 when she started uh, with Roy. So a very long time student of Roy's. Um, so what we're going to do today, first I'm going to start about talking, talking about the importance of the yamas and niyamas. We're going to review those three key practices for Kriya Yoga of self-discipline, self-study, and self-surrender. And then we're going to go through the five yamas and the two remaining niyamas after the three self-discipline, self-study, and self-surrender that really kind of relate to the whole talk. And then you'll have an opportunity to reflect and write about each one after I discuss it briefly. Um, so you'll need uh, some kind of a journal paper or some sort of a document in your computer where you can write. So um, with that, 
Uh, my main resources for the workshop are these two books, um, Ellen Grace O'Brien's book, Living the Eternal Way, which is available from her website, ellengraceobrien.com. I tried to find it on Amazon yesterday and I, I actually, <laughs> they didn't seem to have it, which was weird, but anyway. Uh, and then Roy's book, of course, The Science of Self-Realization, which is uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, uh, trans his uh, translations. Um, so what are these yamas and niyamas or the restraints and observances? This is a nice diagram that I found. I like the fact that it was a, um, a lotus. I got it from yogagentleflow.com. And I, I, the other thing I liked about it is it makes the distinction between the external disciplines of yoga, uh, which are in the red font, and then the internal disciplines uh, of yoga, which are in the black font. Um, plus, I just I kind of like the yoga. So it's interesting to me that yama and niyama are felt to be the first and second limbs. So that's interesting, right? It's like, wow, those are important then, you know, if that's if that's where you start. So starting with the three key practices of Kriya Yoga, and I, I started with the definition or the, um, the uh, translation from Roy's book, uh, the Science of Self-Realization. Um, this is um, chapter two, one, and then two, two. So uh, intensive self-discipline, studious self-inquiry, and surrender to God are the practices of Kriya Yoga. And then 2.2, Kriya Yoga is practice to weaken and eliminate all obstacles to self and God realization. So um, these three practices, uh, self-discipline or tapas in uh, Sanskrit, self-study or svadhyaya, surrender of the self itself, Ishvara Pranidhan, these three are five of the practices of the, the five niyamas. The niyamas are really um, ethical principles about how we relate to ourselves. And then the yamas are ethical principles about how we relate um, to others, well, the external world. So as I was getting ready for this talk, I was thinking about this word realize or the verb to realize. So I looked it up and there are actually lots of meanings, but the first two were the ones that I was interested in. So the first meaning is to grasp or understand clearly. And then the second one is to make real, to give reality to. So to me, the yamas and the niyamas um, help us to move from understanding to making real. Understanding is not really the right word. Grasping is not really the right word either for these inner states, these inner states of oneness that we may experience in meditation. Um, it's, it's a knowing that we have. But then once we have that realization in meditation, once we grasp our essential oneness, then our challenge is to give reality to make that real, to give reality to that realization by the way we live our lives. And to me, that's where the yamas and the niyamas really come to play. So we meditate not for the breakthroughs we have during meditation, but for the transformation of our lives and bringing our deepest realizations from uh, meditation fully into our lives is to me, the goal. That's what we're all, you know, doing here in our practice of yoga. The yamas or restraints provide ethical principles about how to interact with others in the world from our deepest spiritual realizations. And then the niyamas or observances provide guidance about our inner life. 
And then it's kind of interesting. There's a, there's an interplay between the depth of our meditation and our practice of the yamas and the niyamas. And so we practice the yamas and the niyamas. We start potentially on more of a surface level, but then from trying to live that reality, of our deepest spiritual realization, when we go back to meditation, our meditation deepens. And then that gives us more insight into, um, into different ways to practice the yamas and the niyamas. And so it's a, it's a positive reinforcing circle, if that makes sense. So, um, Cultivating the yamas and the niyamas is a form of self-discipline, one of those three key practices of Kriya Yoga that I was just mentioning. Um, and here's a quote from um, Ellen Grace O'Brien's book, Living the Eternal Way. Self-discipline in the deepest sense refers to bringing one's thoughts, words, and actions into alignment with the higher self, capital S self. Cultivation of the virtues is central to the practice of self-discipline. So how do we do that? How do we cultivate the virtues? So first, we stop behaving in ways that are not consistent with our spiritual values. So that's where we always start. Um, and then uh, the self-study comes in as we try and explore the underlying causes of the behavior that we have realized is not consistent with our spiritual values. And then finally, we cultivate the opposite. And I did want to point out, keep in mind, super important to keep in mind that self-control and virtuous behavior don't create a spiritual condition within us. The spiritual condition of pure being is without cause and is not dependent on externals like thought or behavior. So in other words, we already are spiritual. But we practice to destroy the impurities of thought and behavior that obscure the brightness of the soul. So that analogy that my teacher, Yogacharya O'Brien uses, and I think I've also maybe heard Roy use it as well, this lampshade analogy. So there is a bright light of spirit within us. And we all have impurities of thought and behavior that are causing the lampshade to be darkened. And so the light as it comes through that darkened lampshade is not as bright, but we aren't by practicing these virtues, we aren't creating a spiritual condition. That's we, in other words, we aren't lighting the lamp in this case, that lamp is already there. We are already at all, as spiritual as we are ever gonna get at the soul of our being. It's already there. We just have to polish the lampshade and let that light through. So here's another quote from uh, Ellen Grace O'Brien about meditation, the interrelationship between meditation and cultivating the virtues. One who does not cultivate the virtues will have difficulty with meditation due to the chaos and unrest in the mental field caused by living a life that does not resonate with the truth. As one cultivates the virtues and brings the outer life into integrity with inner truth, a calming influence of right living pervades the mind and body, making meditation easier. Meditation then facilitates the deeper work with the virtues, making subtle insight more available by allowing access to the inner realms of knowing. So I thought I just loved the way that she phrased all that. I thought it was much more elegant than my <laughs> my earlier attempt at saying pretty much the same thing. 
So as we work uh, to cultivate these virtues, it's really important to keep the focus on uh, self-realization um, and not have it switch to self-improvement. So in self-discipline, uh, the focus on self-realization keeps the focus on our inner um, the inner light of our soul and just letting more light through, as I've just said, whereas focusing on the imperfect small self reveals a never ending need for improvement because it's coming from a place of ego. Ego is the focus in self-improvement, whereas in self-realization, awareness of needed change allows a focus on the power of the divine self and allows for transformation. So it is it is a distinction. Um, I would just point out that sort of self-criticism and getting down on ourselves for all the ways that we aren't cultivating the virtues. Um, it's not a happy path and it's not a, it, it's just as bound to the ego as feeling great about ourselves, maybe feeling too positive about ourselves. We can also feel too negative about ourselves and be trapped by the ego in that same way. So here we are, the yamas, ethical principles that instruct us about how to interact with the outer world. And, um, one of the reasons, again, that I, I liked the um, ability to include slides is I found some beautiful photographs that are you're going to see interspersed through the talk. And this is one of them. I just thought this was really a breathtaking beach scene. I don't actually know where it is, but it's really beautiful. So any talk about uh, the yamas always starts with harmlessness or ahimsa. Um, it means nonviolence, non-harming, but also it extends beyond that, also meaning kindness, compassion, and being helpful. So it's not enough just not to harm. It is also important to be helpful. It includes everything. It includes our thoughts, our words, and our actions, and some examples. So ecological awareness, um, being aware of when we are over consuming resources, because if we're over consuming, if we're using more resources than we actually need, or if we're wasting resources, then that is potentially harming the planet and harming future generations. Health and fitness might be looked at as examples of harmlessness and how we treat our own body temple. Um, and then anything to do with compassion or loving kindness. These are all examples of, of harmlessness. When you think about it, harmlessness, I think the reason that it's the first and the, and the primary, the, the, mo the biggest, the deepest foundation for all other spiritual practices is it arises from this root principle of yoga. We are all one. All is God. All is divine. And so when we are harming, someone else, we are actually harming ourselves in a very direct way. So I would also point out that the focus in harmlessness really is on the consciousness more than and than actions. One works on the surface level of behavior to minimize harm to others and the planet, but the true work is removing from one's consciousness all desire to harm. So one of the things that's interesting about all of these yamas and niyamas is they all come with a promise and the promises come from Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. And on some cases I did the translation from Roy's book and in some from Ellen's book. 
Um, but the promise of harmlessness is, um, this is Patanjali Zuga Sutra 2.35, uh, in the presence of one whose thoughts and actions are harmless, all living things become peaceful and harmless. So I'm going to read that again. In the presence of one whose thoughts and actions are harmless, all living things become peaceful and harmless. That's a beautiful, beautiful promise um, from the Rishis. And um, obviously something to keep in mind as we as we begin and continue and deepen our practice of harmlessness. So with that, it's time for a reflection. So um, what I did is I pulled together some ideas about some things that you can reflect on and write about. Um, what I'd encourage you to do is not start writing right away, unless you know what you want to say, but to give yourself a couple of moments of just quiet, of just silence, to just reflect on harmlessness. If there was something that I've said when I was discussing harmlessness, perhaps you already have your own thing that you want to reflect on. But these were some ideas that I had. You can choose one of the following areas to reflect on and write on. Um, so, and I would also say that we're going to have five minutes when I stop talking. Um, I'll give you five minutes for each of these. And five minutes may seem like a long time, and it may not seem like very long at all. Um, so if uh, I'll give you a, 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 um, a prompt when you have a minute left, and you may just want to um, note some keywords that you want to include. You may not get to write everything that you want, and I'm hoping you'll be able to come back perhaps sometime later on the retreat, perhaps over this weekend, or perhaps sometime next week, and continue writing uh, where you may not have had time to flesh out everything that you needed to say. So the things that I um, drew from Ellen's book, and also from, some are from me, I think, but um, writing about harmlessness. So self-criticism, how are you doing with self-criticism? Is that something that you struggle with a bit? Um, can you see the connection between self-criticism and having it really come from the ego just as much as perhaps self-congratulation may come from the ego? How about your relationship to your body? How is your relationship to your body? Is there, do you have a harmless relationship to your body? Do you have a supportive and caring relationship to your body? Do you have compassion uh, for yourself? How about your relationship to others, including gossip and criticism? I encourage you to think back, perhaps the last few days, perhaps the last week. Is there anything that you may have noticed, a little kind of an internal glitch when you say something, um, that may make you aware that that really wasn't something that you wanted to say or should have said. So um, how are you doing with gossip and criticism? And then your relationship to resources, your relationship to the planet. Is there some way that you can see now that um, harmfulness may, uh, you may be doing harm without having really been aware of it in the past. So with that, I will give everybody, uh, I will give everybody five minutes and I will be back. Okay, let's come back together. So um, there is going to be time for some questions as we go along. Uh, Ryan, I realize I, I can't really see, um, I don't know how I can see the chat, but if anybody has a question as we go along, if you could go ahead and, um, and, and uh, put it in the chat and Ryan will maybe read it to me as we go. Um, oh, there it is. It's up there. Okay. 
So, uh, what's this chat? Oh, great. So Ryan did mention that a copy of the PowerPoint will be uh, available so people can access the slides um, afterwards. Um, <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Thanks, Catherine. That was mind blowing. I'm glad I'm glad you enjoyed it. That's super. Um, okay, so let's move on. So the next of the of the uh, yamas is truthfulness, satya. So when we begin to speak about truthfulness, um, what I love about the way Yogacharya O'Brien teaches this is that she begins with the contrast between absolute truth and relative truth. So absolute truth, of course, being supreme consciousness, which is eternal and not subject to change ever versus relative truth. And for relative truth, I would just point to my own examples of as a physician. So when I went to medical school in the mid eighties, um, it was felt that um, stomach ulcers were definitely stress related, which I would say that is still, you know, perhaps somewhat true. But what we've since realized is it's actually a bacterial disease. Stomach ulcers are caused by a bacteria and they're now treated with antibiotics. So the, the way that uh, stomach ulcers were treated in the 80s is a relative truth. We thought it was true at the time and then that changed. So um, here's another, um, another quote from Ellen Grace O'Brien from her book, Living the Eternal Way. Truthfulness practice is the cultivation of awareness of one's divine nature as supreme consciousness. I don't know about you, but that kind of blows my mind. Truthfulness practices the cultivation of awareness of one's divine nature as supreme consciousness. It is bringing thought, word, and action into harmony with this awareness. Thus, truthfulness practice is the path to discovering and expressing one's authentic self. So how do we do that? How do we how do we cultivate the awareness of our divine nature as supreme consciousness? Well, it requires the practice of self-discipline, requires the practice of superconscious meditation. I would say also required, I didn't put it on the list here, but it requires self-study and then self-surrender as we listen to the still small voice within that that quote, that way of describing it, the still small voice is from, from the Bible. But I think we all have had an experience of that, right? We do something or we're experiencing something, something's going on and we know in our heart, it's just not right. Um, we don't always listen, <laughs> speaking for myself, I don't know about you, uh, I don't always listen to that, but um, there is a still small voice and we can, and we can cultivate that. So um, there is a need for fear fearlessness to practice truthfulness. So practicing truthfulness requires a level of fearlessness and we have to trust in the divine plan for our lives. Um, what does that mean? Um, true, being true to ourselves means making changes that we may need to make that we that are difficult. Um, and that requires fearlessness and trust that trust in our own and faith in our own still small voice within. We've just talked about harmlessness. And so it's important to point out that truthfulness must be in harmony with harmlessness, like the two wings of a bird. I, I love that analogy. Harmlessness and truthfulness being the two wings of a bird. Um, if there's a conflict between truthfulness and harmlessness, harmlessness always wins. 
harmlessness is the one that that um, is the more important of the two. And so as we as we um, practice uh, harmlessness and truthfulness, we have to be mindful of the power of words. Just as in harmlessness, truthfulness has a promise. For one grounded in truthfulness, words acquire the power of fulfillment. Think about that. For one grounded in truthfulness, words acquire the power of fulfillment. Um, there's a story, there's a Bible story about uh, Jesus. I believe a, a young girl had died and he said, um, she's not dead. She is, I think she said she's sleeping and then she awakened. And so um, that's an example of one who is grounded in truthfulness. What, what we realize as we look at our speech is speech is a creative act. We are bringing something into the world when we speak. And it is the beginning of the creation of possibilities. So there's a real connection with our speech and, um, and with the divine. And if the only words that you ever say are true, if you really take this practice to heart, then that truth develops a power. Um, now, I won't say that we can bring people back from the dead, but that was just an example of this promise, you know, of, of uh, truthfulness. So we've come again to our reflections on truthfulness and another beautiful uh, nature scene that I hope helps you to have some sattvic energy. So reflect on, situ on a situation where you aren't sure of your truth. What might you do to clarify this? Is there a truth that needs to be expressed at the moment? And then reflect on the way that truthfulness and harmlessness interact. What happens if either one is sacrificed? You could also write down any situation where speaking your truth would bring harm to another and then reflect on that and write about it a little bit. Um, and then here's, here's an interesting uh, aspect of truthfulness. Is there an agreement with yourself or another that is not being kept? If you've made an agreement with yourself and you're not keeping that agreement, then that is not truthful. And so you can write about that and how that might be resolved. So once again, everybody's going to get five minutes and I will give you a prompt when you have a minute left. Okay, so that draws our reflections on truthfulness to an end. I did get a question in chat, which I figured out how to access um, when I'm screen sharing. So from Lee Harvey, Lee asked, does harmlessness have priority because our understanding of truthfulness changes as we grow in understanding? I would say yes, that for sure, because um, as I mentioned, um, the you know, that really makes it a relative truth. And I think to me, ahimsa is the most directly related to to our essential oneness. You know, that is why it has priority, because in a way, it's the deepest truth that there is, right, that we are all one, that we are all, you know, that that the divine is um, uh, omnipresent, that it, you know, we are it, we are part of it, we are all part of it. Um, and so that is a very, very high truth. Um, that and it's the expression of that harmlessness is the expression of that truth and so that is what gives it always priority i think um and then another question from catherine uh what happens if we are asperger's and often hurt people without meaning to by our truth 
Um, you know, I feel like you don't have to have Asperger's to tr hurt people, <laughs> um, you know, by um, without meaning to. I think it's something that um, we, you know, it may happen to anyone anytime. And I would just say that um, the more that you can practice meditation, the more that that um, sattvic energy the su from superconscious meditation can permeate your mental field, um, the bigger the space opens for me, it feels like a space between what I what it occurs to me to do or say, and what I actually do or say. Um, when I when my meditation practice is strong, and I feel well established in it, you know, somehow I feel like there's, a, do you know what I mean? There's like a space there, you know, that opens. Um, I would say like, originally, when I was doing this work, I would realize maybe the next day that I had said something the day before that I really didn't want to say. And then it became like maybe later that day that I realized it. And then it became, <laughs> and then it became more like five minutes after I said it, I realized I didn't really want to say that. And then it became like, oh, it's the minute I'm saying it. It's actually like right before I say it, that the space opens up. So that's what I would say. And um, you know, I, I do think that it's valuable to look at those things, you know, to look at, you know, so, so to um, do some journaling when you catch yourself in having said something that harms someone, um, do some journaling about it and look and see. So what was your state of mind? What was your concern? Where was that coming from? I think that kind of self studies is very, very helpful. So with that, let's move on to our next uh, of our yamas. So um, non-stealing, Asteya. So this is an interesting one, you guys. So obviously at a surface level, we re refrain from taking anything that doesn't belong to us, right? Okay, non-stealing, we get it, right? However, there's also this aspect on the ment in the mental aspect of being free of envy, being free of desiring something that is not ours. And how often do we feel that? right? A little jealous that somebody else has something. Um, it is also non-stealing can be applied. Um, it, we kind of touched on this just a little bit in harmlessness, but it also means to possess or use only what we need. Hmm. So when we speed on the freeway, it can be looked at as stealing resources from future generations. So we're using electricity or gas to go faster potentially than the law allows. And, um, you know, and that is using something that uh, is beyond potentially what we need. Um, another question that I have, it turns out that discarded food, you know, food that you that goes bad in your fridge that you throw out is a source of air pollution. And it, it is apparently not an insignificant source of air pollution, which is stealing clean air from future generations. So there is a, this relationship at a deep level to practice between practicing non-stealing and contentment, which we're going to get to. It's one of the niyamas. So at the deepest level to practice non-stealing is to dwell in the contentment of the completeness of the self. Isn't that wonderful? We have this ability to dwell in this contentment that we have all that we need, that we are all that we need. And when we are coming from that level of expression of soul expression, we truly don't, I, I'm sure you guys have, you know, if you've been meditating for any period of time, you have these experiences where, you know, it's just so beautiful. It's just so full. 
um, I believe it was Julianne of Norwich who described it, um, all this is full, all that is full. When fullness comes from fullness, fullness remains. And that just knocks my socks off. I don't know about you, but that amount of fullness, that amount of contentment, and even when fullness comes from fullness, there's still fullness left. It's amazing. So um, on the other hand, if you feel that you don't have enough and you feel that you need uh, some something in the world, some object, if you need that pair of shoes or you need that sweater or you need that car or that house or whatever, if you feel that you don't have enough, what is interesting is that more is always needed. Have you noticed that in your own self-study when you, when you achieve something, when you buy that new car or what have you, you move to that new apartment, whatever, you know, it makes you happy for a period of time. But if, as you do self-study, what you'll see is that it's, it's definitely not long lasting happiness. <laughs> you know, the new car with the first dent from the parking lot, you know, is not, is not the source of happiness that we perhaps thought that it was going to be. So um, as much as our contentment, which we'll talk more about, is associated with these external things um, that we thought we need, that we thought we needed to steal, um, we realize, no, that, that's, not really, that's not really the case. So this is another way of thinking about it. Everything that exists in the world is a manifestation of the divine. Thus, everything belongs to God. So our life work then becomes surrendering everything as it passes through our hands, surrendering everything to the divine. For some in the Jewish faith, it is considered stealing if one neglects to give thanks before a meal. So as we've been doing with all of these, uh, all of these yamas, uh, the promise of non-stealing, which is in PYS as Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, I just got tired of typing the whole thing. Uh, one who is grounded in non-stealing experiences the jewel of abundance. I just love that. One who is grounded in non-stealing experiences the jewel of abundance. And if you um, heard what I just said about that true source of abundance coming from within, you can see how that would be the case, right? One who's grounded in non-stealing experiences the jewel of abundance. And I did want to mention that Yogacharya O'Brien has written another book called the jewel of abundance, which is about Arta, which is about prosperity, one of the four uh, life goals um, that come out of the Vedas. Purushartas, they're called. Um, so uh, EGOB, Ellen Grace O'Brien, Live the Eternal Way, that's where that quote came from. And then the last thing to say about non-stealing is about generosity. So there's a relationship again, you know, with all of these, um, all of these cultivating these virtues, it's not enough just to not do whatever the negative is, but we also want to do the positive, right? So practicing generosity, since all is freely given to us from spirit, um, we actually have the opportunity to participate in the divine creative process by sharing our time, energy, and money, right? So we can you know, donate money to those things that we value and that we want to see more of in the world. And then that's actually resources that are coming through us from the divine and passing on to others. Okay, so reflections on non-stealing or esteia. I don't know if this photo, I don't know if it's that's the moon. I kind of think it is, but I can't tell quite. It could just be a very early star, but it looks a little bit too big. Um, I just loved that photo. There was something, I don't know, so hopeful about it to me. 
So when we reflect on non-stealing, uh, you can reflect on non-stealing and your, your relationship to taking things, those little things. Um, I wrote this, the office supplies from work, and then I thought, well, you know, no one's been at work this last year <laughs> with the pandemic, so no one's been taking those office supplies, but perhaps there's something similar. Um, have you taken something that you maybe didn't even think of uh, as stealing, and is there a need to make amends? Maybe not. Doesn't you know? I'm not saying that there has to be, but it's an interesting thing to think about. Is there anything that you have borrowed and not returned? If we borrow something and don't give it back, what's the difference then from stealing if it hasn't actually been returned? So if you have a list of things that you've borrowed and don't actually belong to you, make a list and make a plan to have how to return them. Reflect on non-stealing and your relationship to giving. Do you regularly give of your time, money, and service? And how does that feel? Can you see the relationship of these things coming into your life from spirit as everything is a manifestation of spirit, of God? Um, and then do you see what is your role then as you um, have the opportunity to pass those along to others? Now, this last one is very interesting, and um, <laughs> I would just encourage people not to take any quick action, but um, there's this question about your work in the world. So this gets has to do with dharma, and in particular with svadharma, which is your own personal dharma, this question about are you pursuing your own work in the world? Because if you aren't, then it, you could be, it could be viewed potentially that you are stealing that job that you have from the person whose work it is in the world. Um, now, please don't go out and quit your job tomorrow, please, because you don't want to do anything like that. It's the kind of thing that takes a lot of reflection, but it is worthy. It is, it is worthy reflection, and perhaps especially at this time uh, as the pandemic comes to a close, and you have the opportunity to reflect on as we rebuild our lives, what do we want in those lives? Is it time to make a change? Um, are you doing the work that you should be doing? And there is that quote that I don't have in front of me, but something about it is better to do your work in the world, even if imperfectly, rather than to do someone else's work, even if you can do it perfectly. So that's something to think about and that you might wanna write about. So here we are, another time for reflection. You have um, five minutes. Okay, so that brings the reflections on non-stealing to a close, although, um, <laughs> although I did have a question from uh, Seema, is it Nike? And uh, she asked if I could please elaborate on the last point about uh, pursuing your own work or are you taking someone else's job inadvertently? So this is a huge topic. It's a huge topic. And if it has resonance for you, I would encourage you to look into it a little bit more. And there are some resources that I can point you to. So one is uh, that Stephen Cope, uh, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Cope, C-O-P-E, um, he is one of the founders of the um, um, Kripalu, uh, you know, center for, it's in Eastern Massachusetts. It's a, probably the largest uh, yoga retreat center in the country. And Stephen Cope has a wonderful book that is called The Great Work of Your Life. And it is illustrations of a bunch of historical examples of people who found their work, what, what their, what was their work to do. So it really is about this question about what is our work 
in the world? What, it, what is ours to do? Um, there were two wonderful conversations with Stephen Cope on the Yoga Hour. So you can go to, um, you can actually, these older episodes are not loaded on the website, but go to wherever get, you get your podcasts and you can put in Stephen Cope's name. Well, actually find the Yoga Hour first, find the Yoga Hour and then put in Stephen Cope's name and you'll get these prior episodes. Uh, and they are about Dharma. They are about finding your work in the world. Um, and so those would be a really great, those would be a really great resource for you. Um, and I think that's really all I can do, you know, right now, all I would say is don't take any hasty action. Um, but you know, how we know it's our work to do is it's something that we feel there's a connection with us to the work that we're doing in the world. And for me, for a really long time, that connection was in medicine. And then when it felt like, um, it was time, it felt to me that my, my Svadharma had shifted and it was time for me to be doing something else. And I really, uh, I had studied, I've been studying yoga philosophy with Yogacharya O'Brien since 2002, and this got to be 2014. And I decided it was time to leave medicine and retire a little bit on the early side, which was in my late 50s. And, um, you know, and that's when I started being the co-host on the Yoga Hour, um, and then eventually um, the producer on uh, 2016, and then the host, now the host and producer and the website person. So, um I can, I know for sure that, you know, what is your right work can change uh, over time. And um, it takes a period of time to, to figure it out. So um, hopefully those uh, will be um, useful to you. Um, I can on the next break, I will type the information about Stephen Cope into the um, into the chat box so you guys can uh, find it. That's what I'll do with my when your next uh, reflection time. Okay, here we go. Right use of vital force, brahmacharya. So um, this is the fourth of the uh, yamas. Um, and we did hear about it yesterday in Danelle's talk, which I thought was excellent. Um, so hopefully this will be, um, you know, uh, touching on some of the same things that she said. So appropriate use of life force is our use of time, attention, and resources in harmony with the divine purpose for our life. Um, and then, so how, what kinds of things deplete vital force? So vital force is decreased through excessive talking, through worrying. I think everybody, it's probably um, a light bulb's going off <laughs> because I certainly feel like it's a waste of energy to worry and yet I sometimes can't help it. Um, meaningless activity. And then uh, rajasic or tamasic environments. So just very briefly, um, in Samkhya, actually, there are these things called the gunas, and they're also in yoga philosophy. There are three gunas, and it's felt that every single thing, including ourselves, each of us, and then everything in the world, is made up of a combination of these three uh, gunas. Um, and so those are uh, uh, sattva, um, which I believe has been mentioned several times already, and that has qualities of lightness, of, um, of illumination, of brightness, um, of peacefulness. That's, those are sattvic qualities. You can often find them in nature. Uh, Rajas guna is, um, it's very, um, uh, it's a lot of activity. So think about when you, if you had the misfortune of having to go to the mall to go shopping the day before Christmas, that's Rajas. That's Rajas Guna, uh, you know, by the bucketful. Tamas Guna is uh, heavy. So it's inertia, it's darkness, it's heaviness. And again, 
all of us have these three gunas in in us. Um, and it, once you once you hear about them, you can actually start to notice um, the qualities that something has. So if you're watching a TV show that is kind of making you tense and nervous, then that's going to be, um, you know, probably some rajasic energy is coming at you, you know, from there. So being aware of that, being aware of environments uh, is um, something that can help us um, use our discernment in terms of right use of vital force. How do we increase vital force? So vital force is increased through meditation, but in particular, not just meditation, but super conscious meditation. So, you know, that state in meditation that we can get to that transcends conscious thought. Devotional practices such as prayer, such as chanting, those kinds of things. Now here's a really good one, silence, silence. All right, practicing silence, taking some period of time where you can just be quiet. And again, it allows us to listen to that still small voice within. And it's a wonderful practice if there's time in our life or a period of our life that we can uh, spend in silence. Living in harmony with one's deepest values increases our vital force. So when we know that we are living in accordance with our highest values, there's a, there's a free flow of energy through the body, through the mental field, and that can increase our vital force. Rest, of course, can increase vital force, consciously surrendering one's will to the divine will. So that's that practice of Ishvara Pranidhan, right? That's the, that's the surrendering the separate self and the non-attachment, which we'll talk about next, non-attachment uh, to outcomes. And then spending time in sattvic environments, such as nature. So that's a list of some ways that you can increase vital force. Um, learning to live a surrendered life is a significant aspect of brahmacharya. So this refers to the willingness to the surrender, to surrender the desires of the ego-driven self to the inner guidance of the higher true self, capital S self. So we are willing to surrender the desires of the ego-driven small S self to the inner guidance of the higher true self. Um, so right use of vital force, how do we practice it? Take some time to meditate take some time to pray, consider what the right course of action should be. And to me, that's not something you do during meditation. So you just get yourself set up, you begin meditation, you could do Kriya Pranayams, if you are an initiate, do, you know, let your meditation proceed. And then at the end, and after you do the kind of um, little visualization, creative visualization that I did in the earlier meditation, imagining that light either radiating from your heart center or radiating from the crown chakra down into the brain, into the mental field, and and um, allowing it to pervade the mental field, and um, you know, telling yourself that your discernment is being sharpened, your intuition is being awakened. Then that's the time to consider what the right course of action would be then you have an open an open doorway to your higher true self and you can hear the guidance that comes. So what's the promise of Brahmacharya? Patanjali's Yoga Sutra 238. Here is from Roy Eugene Davis. When all thoughts and actions are fully conformed to one's aspiration to be self-realized, physical, mental, and spiritual strength is acquired. So once more, when all thoughts and actions are fully conformed to one's aspiration to be self-realized, physical, mental, and spiritual strength is acquired. So here we go. 
reflections on the right use of vital force. And I want to just point your attention to this beautiful photo when I was looking for one that actually had reflections in it. I thought these are reflections. I should be having photos with reflections in them. So there the trees are reflected in the water. <laughs> so thinking back on your recent activities over the last few days or the last week or so, have you noticed what increases or drains your vital force. So just think about what have you done and then how did you feel after you did it? You can reflect on that. Or when was the last time you spent time in nature and did you notice how it affected you? You can write about that. Um, you could make a plan about how you can have more time in nature. <laughs> so next you could reflect on whether there is a period of time you might be able to spend in silence and make a plan to do so. What might that require? You're probably going to have to tell people that you live with if you want to spend some time in silence and they're going to be around. <laughs> so the next, you can observe your relationship to work and the time you make available for worship or meditation and ask yourself, do I need to make adjustments here? So once again, those are our questions for reflections. You may have your own that you may have come up with as I was talking and everybody has five minutes. That is it for um, Right Use of Vital Force. I did put uh, the things that I just mentioned, Stephen's, the name of Stephen Cope's book, Prior Yoga Hour episodes, I looked them up for you. There are two, Discover Your Dharma and Do It on Purpose from December 5th, 2013, and Craft Your Glorious Life from uh, December 1st, 16. Again, you know, these are old episodes, but this is timeless wisdom from these people. These are amazing yoga thinkers, top yoga thinkers, uh, some of the top yoga thinkers in the country. Um, and so even though these are older episodes, they are just chock full of yoga wisdom that is timeless. So, and then I'm also doing one uh, right now. Um, and so another uh, great yoga hour episode with Rod Stryker, he also has a book. So uh, the episode of the yoga hour was create a life of purpose. And that was from January 26th of 17. And then he has a great book called the four desires, creating a life of purpose, happiness, prosperity, and freedom. And the purpose part is the part that's on Dharma. And there's a workbook that goes along with it that you can, um, you know, there's a lot of, of, of uh, prompts for reflection, reading and reflection is in the workbook. So I can highly recommend all of those uh, resources to everybody. Okay, so moving on. Here we are, the last, the fifth of the uh, yamas. This is non-attachment. So um, attachment, when we think about attachment, attachment is said to be the root of all suffering. This is a key principle in Buddhism, of course, but also uh, it's present in yoga. Um, and so we think about happiness. Making our happiness dependent on temporary things makes happiness temporary as well. This is a sad truth of the world. <laughs> Um, this includes relationships, situations, or physical objects. And so lots of times there's this feeling of if I could only have X, if I could only have a new car, if I could only have that great pair of shoes, if I could only have, um, you know, that outfit, if I can only have that boyfriend or girlfriend, you know, then I will be happy. Now we're going to talk about contentment and contentment really does relate, you know, here to non-attachment, but we have to realize that um, making our happiness dependent on temporary things, it, it's only going to lead to temporary happiness because that's all it can lead to. A thing cannot, you know, lead to something that is not in its nature. And these are all temporary objects. Attachment also leads to greed. 
And I would say aversion, so avoiding things also has the same effect of binding us. Um, the true source of our happiness, fulfillment, and security is spirit, the unchanging reality, as we've said, that source of fullness, that source of wholeness that we can access uh, from within. Relationships. So true love in a relationship is not attachment to the other as a source of happiness, but rather the ability to love the divine as expressed in one's partner. We can also be attached to our views and can practice being open to receiving others' viewpoints. Now, this is something that is almost a lost art today, but something that we could potentially work on. So what is the promise of non-attachment? Patanjali's Yoga Sutra 2.39, one who is grounded in non-attachment acquires knowledge of the cycles of birth and death. So that's pretty deep. And with that, we have another beautiful photo of reflections. You can see the swan's reflection and the tree's reflections in the water. Reflections on non-attachment. If there is an object that you feel attached to, contemplate the defects inherent in all things. So I have a beautiful little set. It's like a tea, I have a little collection of teapots. I think I have five, four or five of them. And I had I used to I have I have one that stacks where it's the teapot and then it's a cup and then it's a creamer and the sugar and the, all of the all of the handles of them used to line up and then a couple of them got dropped and the repairs did not go so well. And so there's like a little like piece missing in one and you know so clearly that that inherent uh, possibility of breaking it was inherent all the time in that beautiful teapot do I still enjoy it yes is it the way that it was before no it's really not the way that it was before so we can we can uh, contemplate um, how is this thing that I've attached my happiness to not not perfect or not permanent we can reflect that spirit is the cause and sustainer of all. So um, if, that, if that's true of spirit and we're not attached to our resources again, how do you currently practice generosity? So generosity, you know, once again comes in with non-attachment. Um, reflect on ways, this is directly related to what Danelle was talking about yesterday, reflect on ways that you might be able to simplify your lifestyle. Do you need all of the possessions that you have? Is there a way to simplify what you have? Um, how are you able to love and honor the divine in your relationships? And then reflect on how you're able to be non-attached or if, if you are able or how you're able to be non-attached to the results of your actions. All of these are great reflections on non-attachment. So again, everybody has five minutes. All right, so um, moving along, we are headed into a new territory, which is the Niyamas. Um, I love this photo of a sunrise over a field of wildflowers, or, or maybe it's sunset, I'm not sure, but the sun's near the horizon. And um, spiritual practices for our inner life. We've already talked about three of the five niyamas. Um, they've kind of woven their way through uh, our talk of the other, uh, of the yamas. Those are uh, self-discipline, which is clearly part of every single every single thing we've talked about requires self-discipline. Self-study, which is trying to understand our own response to 
things, why we do what we do, and then self-surrender that's come up many times. And so those are all part of the niyamas, but there are two other ones that we haven't touched on yet. So cleanliness, this is an interesting one, chauka. So um, it's focused again on recovering our natural state of purity. So I would take you back to that first story that I talked about, about the lampshade. So we aren't creating, we aren't making ourselves pure. We aren't creating purity. What we're just doing is recovering the purity that we've already have. So we don't make ourselves pure, but we rather cleanse the body mind vehicle so that the natural purity of the self is revealed. I love how, I love how that's phrased. And I, I think I took that directly from Yogacharya O'Brien's book. When one's body and mind are filled with toxins, the brightness of the self is hidden. So we are just cleaning that lampshade. We, when we practice uh, cleanliness, when we observe cleanliness, we're cultivating an environment that is conducive to spiritual realization, something that is sattvic, something that is free of clutter, free of confusion. Um, also realizing that it's not always in our power. So one is not always able to have control over the influences on the inner and outer environments or of the inner and outer environments. But becoming conscious of those influences expands the possibilities of choice. So as I mentioned, we now that we've talked about uh, the three gunas about sattva, and rajas sattva being that you know that uh, calm pure illuminating uh, energy rajas being the you know excited irritated type of energy and tamas being the heavy energy uh, inertia um, we can become aware and even if it's not in our uh, potential to change that environment now. We may need to be in an environment that we feel that is not a sattvic environment, but being aware of it may guide choices, you know, later on. So it's always important to 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 be aware of the um, of what the qualities of the um, environment are. I would point out this does not mean denying the physical body or the physical world. So we do not need to um, distance ourselves from our physical bodies. Uh, the body is uh, viewed in yoga as a temple. We do not need to separate ourselves from the physical world. We don't need to go to a cave in the Himalayas to live. Um, these are these are practices that we can do in our everyday life. <clears throat> so what are some of those cleanliness practices? So after super conscious meditation, Imagining your body filled with light drawn from your crown chakra or your heart chakra. And I love to feel the healing quality of that, of that light as it spreads throughout my body and really feel that my cells, that each and every cell is opening to that. I'm um, imagining that it's like dry ground, um, you know, during the first part of a rainstorm where the ground just begins to just soak up, you know, that water. Um, imagining every cell um, just being permeated with that and every process, every internal process coming into order. Chanting and prayer are cleanliness practices as well. Creating more sattva in the mental field, creating more um, ability for us to see and understand the other changes we need to make in env environment. Redirecting our attention to that which is useful or sattvic and resisting negative influences such as participating in gossip, participating in criticism, TV violence. This is, this is really big. Realize that we are taking in 
that you know we are we are ingesting whatever we watch on tv or whatever websites you know we visit whatever you know news we read or whatever um you know just being aware of the potential for um you know further fogging up our lampshade um seeking sattvic environments such as being in nature uh spiritual studies uh reading spiritual um books um a reading about the lives of of um of uh, spiritually evolved beings. If you don't already have the practice of reading the autobiography every uh, autobiography of a yogi every year, uh, man, that's a great one to start. Go ahead and start that one. There's also um, Phil Goldberg's biography of Yogananda, which is a very good book. Uh, Roy Eugene Davis's books. These are all you know wonderful opportunities for us to immerse ourselves in uplifting. Um, uh, uplifting things that will help in the practice of cleanliness. Um, our diet also plays a role here. And it's not possible for everyone, you don't feel that you have to do this, but consider a cleansing diet for three to five days, which is really based on just very simple food. And so for, for breakfast, you might just have fruit. For lunch and dinner, have you know brown rice and a salad or brown rice and some uh, steamed veggies with some lemon juice, but just really super clean diet, avoiding all processed foods, avoiding, of course, any alcohol, any sugar, um, anything like that. And that is another way to um, detoxify and to uh, purify uh, uh, the body is by being very, very cautious, conscious of what we are eating. So what's the promise of cleanliness? One established in purity or cleanliness abstains from contamination. Through this purity, one achieves joy, even-mindedness, detachment, mastery over the senses, and the ability to perceive the true self with a capital S. This is a great promise, you guys, right? So through this purity, one achieves joy, even-mindedness, detachment, mastery over the senses and the ability to perceive the true self. So there's a lot of great benefits to, uh, to cleanliness practice. So here we go. I loved this photo. I loved that little figure. It looks like he's jumping up or she is jumping up in the air. And once again, it's like a, a sunrise to me, a sunrise picture it could be sunset, but I think it's sunrise. So here's some reflections for you. You may, as I said, already have your own, but reflect on your physical space at home. Is the environment sattvic? Is it rajasic? Is it tamasic? Maybe different parts of your bedroom or your study have different <laughs> energies associated with them. You can list some changes that you want to make to contribute to the serenity and peace of your, of your external space. Thinking about this past week, what types of TV did you watch? What did you read? Are there changes that you'd like to begin? Next one, how is your diet currently? Would you like to begin a cleansing diet? What plans can you make about how to do that? Now, right here on the retreat, is there a way that you could uh, make a plan for you know tomorrow or next week? Um, having a day, uh, even one day you know, of, uh, of this kind of a diet or maybe a couple of days? And then when was the last time you were in nature? Is there a plan that you wanna make about how to spend more time in nature? So those are some reflections for you. And once again, we have five minutes. And that's the time. So there was a question from Gabrielle. Uh, what about fasting? So it's a little bit more complicated. I think that everyone can do the kind of diet that I mentioned, the, the kind of just focusing on fruits, vegetables, and brown rice. Um, 
If you are um, familiar with Ayurveda, it, well, if you're not familiar with Ayurveda, I highly recommend Roy's books, uh, Roy's book on Ayurveda, An Easy Guide to Ayurveda by Ray Eugene Davis. It's a really wonderful overview, has a great, um, has a great uh, uh, test there that you can see what your constitutional type is. Um, if you are a Pitta, type, which is not going to make sense to you if you don't know about Ayurveda, so you'll have to go to Roy's book. But if you are a Pitta type, um, there is a real uh, tendency to overdo things. And this is summer, which is the pit, it's the easiest for Pittas to get imbalanced in the summer because it uh, has to do with the fire that's in Pitta and the fire that's in summer. So I would not recommend fasting for Pittas, particularly in the summer. Pittas are much better off doing moderation on doing it, um, you know, doing uh, the kind of diet that I mentioned. But um, if you are, if you have a lot of kapha in you and you want to do a, a fast for a couple of days, I think that's fine. I, I you know, again, I wouldn't take it more than one or two days, um, three maybe at the most. But, you know, people can, you know, people go overboard with this stuff. And I think that's a risk as much as anything else. Okay, uh, here's a um, mention. Some of my favorite movies have violence, like The Matrix. Can you balance negative influences? All I would say is, you know, the important thing is just to see how it affects you. And um, The Matrix eventually kind of comes to a, um, you know, comes to a a uh, point of, um, uh, you know, resolution, you know, of, of the violence. And it's not as graphic of violence, I think, as a matrix, but it all depends on how it affects you. I'm someone, for example, I hate watching scary movies because scary movies stay with me for forever. I mean, seriously, I'll see like a, a fake scary image in a movie and I'll remember it like years later. So I just know I, I can't watch scary movies. I don't watch them anymore because they don't affect me very well. So, um, you know, it's these aren't meant to be rigid guidelines. These are meant to be um, areas for your own personal self-study, areas for your own personal self-discipline. So yeah, if those are your favorite movies, watch them. It's not a problem. Okay, so we've got one more to do, and um, I want—I definitely don't want to skip over contentment. We should have just enough time to finish this. So, contentment, samtosha, contentment practice is dwelling continually in remembrance of the true self. Happiness flows from the inherent bliss of the soul. The promise of contentment is uh, through contentment, unlimited joy is realized. Now, think about that. Okay, through contentment, unlimited joy is realized. So basically what it's saying is that we should practice contentment and that's going to get us to joy, right? Where I think a lot of people, as I mentioned earlier, think about it the other way. You know, if I can only have this, then I'll be happy, then I'll be content, you know. But the experience of true joy is actually revealed through the practice of contentment. First, you practice contentment, and then you get true joy. Find the inner contentment that is natural to the soul, and true joy follows. So it's kind of it's kind of like the reverse, I think, of what the the superficial understanding of it is. To practice contentment, we need to let go of our expectations, our desired results, and trust the outcome to the divine. Again, this is one of the three. Three key practices of Kriya Yoga, surrender of the separate self, trusting the outcome to the divine. 
So how, this is often comes up for people, how can one practice contentment knowing all the suffering there is in the world? And particularly this time that we've just come out of, I mean, with 600,000 deaths from you know COVID-19 in the United States, there are so many people that are suffering all these other things that are the injustice that we see in the world, um, you know, that just on and on and on. So I would say a couple things. So one is that we can reflect on how conditions are always changing. So the classic story that you may have heard is, um, I think it becomes out of Buddhism, that there's a, a, a farmer in a village and he buy, has enough money, very good harvest, and he buys a horse. So all the neighbors in the village are saying, oh, he's so lucky he has a horse. But the farmer says to himself, it's too soon to tell. So then the horse runs off. And now everybody in the village is saying, well, we thought you were lucky, but now you're unlucky because your horse ran away. And then the next day, the horse, which was a stallion, comes back and it's brought a mare, a wild mare back to the farm. So now the people are once again saying, wow, that guy is so lucky he bought a horse, but now he has two horses because the stallion went and got a wild mare. The man is still thinking too soon to tell. So then the man, uh, the farmer only has one son and the son is trying to break the horse, the wild mare and gets bucked off and injures his hip and then subsequently has to walk with a limp. So everyone's thinking, oh, this farmer, now his son, his only son is crippled and he can't walk for any distance. So that's terrible, very unlucky. The farmer's still thinking too soon to tell. And then the next village attacks and all the young men in, in this village are conscripted to, to join in the fight, except for this farmer's son because he can't walk for any distance. He has this, he has this limp. So it's, it's an extreme example, but it's an example about how conditions really are always changing. Um, and then the other thing is that if we practice contentment and are able to be content regardless of circumstance, we avoid getting overly um, affected and tamasic about the, the, wrong, the things that are wrong in the world. Because if we really truly have compassion, we may want to take action. And it's hard to take action if you're so downtrodden and beaten down by everything that's happening in the world. Everyone's in, or you're in a tamasic state and you can't really take action. And so contentment practice allows us to take compassionate action. I would point out that dwelling in contentment is not denial. With contentment practice, we are aware of all. So we really know what's going on, but we make a conscious choice to focus on the inner self. And to practice contentment is to live by faith. Okay, I loved this photo. That sky is just amazing, isn't it, with that waterfall? So reflect on any area of your life where you are not content and examine why. Is there an outcome that you desire that you are having difficulty letting go of? Is there a way that you can hold that outcome a little bit more loosely and allow for some, um, some, you know, whatever the divine plan is to emerge and have you be okay with that? Reflect on any area of your life where you feel grateful acknowledge the goodness in your life. And no matter what is going on, there are always things uh, to be to be grateful for. 
Reflect on something in your life that you initially disliked, but which led to growth or where your feelings changed, like the too soon to tell story. So write about this process where it was too soon to tell whatever terrible thing happened to you. And then you look back and you think, wow, if that hadn't happened, then, you know, for whatever reason, I wouldn't be where I am today. So um, I think reflecting on those too soon to tell stories is a really useful it's a really useful practice. So choose one of those and reflect. And this is our last five minutes. We should finish just about on time. Okay. And that is the end of our reflections. And I just have one more slide for you. So in summary, we practice the yamas and niyamas to bring ourselves from realizing something in meditation to making it real in our lives, to living it. The yamas and niyamas have tremendous depth and subtlety. Practicing them deepens our meditation, which then deepens our observance of the yamas and niyamas. There's a beautiful um, positive feedback loop that we're in. Meditating, practicing silence, and journaling are wonderful ways to explore the yamas and niyamas. I know I've, I've um, uh, had people who, for example, would choose uh, one of the yamas and write about it, uh, journal about it, say for a week, um, and then move on to the next one. And that brings a certain depth, you know, to your practice, or you could do it by the day, you know, choose a, a, a yama of the day, you know, and write about that. Um, I hope this has been valuable for you. I have really, really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed your questions. Um, I believe we are at the time to stop. So if anybody needs to um, sign off, uh, great. And if there are any other questions, I have a few more minutes if you wanna go ahead and type them in the chat. All right, thank you, Laura. We'll see if any other questions pop up. Um, but one thing occurred to me while you were giving this talk, um, this morning when Chris Sartain was presenting, one of the questions came up was, are there any female gurus? And well, here we have one. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> Thank you. And, but also Ellen, you know, Ellen Grace O'Brien, your teacher. And it seems like I was looking at the um, Center for Spiritual Enlightenment site the other day, and it looks like she is very well populated California with female teachers. So yes. <laughs> there are a lot of female teachers at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, for sure. So that's, yeah. it's fun for me. Yeah. Yeah, so definitely. I just wanted to, to point that out. And um, those of you who uh, who will be attending our, our next session this evening uh, will be a meditation with Laurel, C correct? You're, you're still able to do that, Laurel? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. Yes, and I, I highly encourage you to attend. I, I get the feeling she's probably a wonderful person to, to meditate with. This will be my first time as well. Um, let's see. It doesn't look like there were any questions, so I guess you were just extremely thorough, which I agree with there. Um, but you, you'll know how to reach uh, Laurel. Um, they, can they contact you through the, the yogahour.com website or? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's a contact uh, information. You'll see a page of me in my study uh, broadcasting. It's a little photo of me. And yes, there's a, there's a contact form or, or there's the email address and that, that will get to me. Okay. Yeah, so if you need to reach Laurel or have any other questions based on what she's talked about or other things, um, you, know, you can find her there. And definitely check out the Yoga Hour podcast. Uh, it's a wonderful podcast, a great resource. So thank you for being with us today, Laurel. I really appreciate you, you taking the time.
Well, thanks for arranging this beautiful retreat, Ryan. I think you've done a great job and you've accumulated, uh, you know, a, a, a beautiful community here. It's been really a pleasure for me to participate. Yes, it's wonderful to have them all. And um, again, uh, we'll see you, Laurel, and everyone else back in about two hours' time. And we'll meditate together to end uh, our Friday sessions. And then we'll pick up again tomorrow at 8 a.m. Eastern time and continue. So thank you all for being here. This episode of the Kriya Yoga podcast was made possible by donations from Kriya Yoga apprenticeship students and supporters of our Patreon community at www.patreon.com forward slash Kriya Yoga.